0: Welcome to the new Cat Chat brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, the wonderful private company owned by Dr. Elsie, whose mission is to formulate litters to keep cats in their loving homes with his proven veterinarian formulated litter box solutions for the health of all members of the family. I'm Tracy Hotchner, the author of The Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. And my mission has always been to entertain, educate, and inspire cat lovers to offer their kitty cats the best possible life in nutrition, affection, and environmental enrichment. With Dr. Elsie's support, Cat Chat brings you interviews with cat authors and experts, some old favorites, some new conversations, so you can better understand and appreciate your feline family members. Sit back and enjoy. Abigail Tucker, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me now let me let me just know you obviously were and are a cat lover. I have never seen so much eclectic, fascinating world ranging information from the librea Pits to right now about cats. but are you like sick of cats now? Did this happen to you?
1: You know, I don't know if I could ever be truly sick of cats. <laughs> That's part of their charms and part of why they've made such a an imprint on the world. Yeah. they uh, just seem to have such a, um, a claw hold on our affections but um,
0: you just keep learning new things and, and, there, and it, it's interesting that it, it really is a scratch the surface kind of thing right I mean when you set out to write the book, what did you exp- did you have your title right from the beginning? It's a great title oh thank you.
1: Um, you know, I had the title, um, but I didn't have the subtitle. How house cats tamed us and took over the world, and, <laughs> and that was sort of the, the the conclusion that I that I came to as I um, poured over diverse fields of research. That you know, cats were the ones running the show in this relationship, and that's something that you hear in the popular culture, and we like to sort of. Uh, cast our cats in this role as being, yes. you know, the bosses yes. and where are their staff and stuff. But yes. I was yes. really kind of surprised to find out that the sort of biological backstory uh, uh, bears that out in ways that I hadn't really expected. Um, so it was, I, I, I was just as surprised when I did a lot of the research and and sort of delighted to learn that this little creature that we have in our houses has kind of um, a life that extends beyond our living rooms and um, influences various things in, in the world
0: so when we talk about biology and history what were some of those um, aha moments that you stumbled on in your research and then and then dug down about well one of my favorite um,
1: historical moments um Is Well, actually, so an interesting biological fact that I had known intuitively, but not actually kind of thought about much is that the reason that mammals have problems spreading throughout the world is um, the fact that, um, you know, water, rivers and oceans. And um, yeah, basically, cats sort of got around that by sort of styling themselves as these shipboard companions and going all around to these islands that um, often don't have any native uh, mammal populations at all, like New Zealand does not have have any four-legged mammals walking around they've got a couple of species of bats but bats disperse more like birds do um but one of the wait a minute fascinating... wait back
0: up they don't have any four-legged mammals walking around explain
1: they do not have any native mammals in New Zealand. They've got wow. lots of birds and they have reptiles, but New Zealand is really far away and it's hard for wow. mammals to reach these distant places. Um, so they, um, and they have to get there two by two. Don't forget that. So one one <laughs> mammal that makes it to New Zealand um, isn't going to do itself much good. Um, but uh, so uh, anyways, um, one of the interesting things that I, um, that I learned was that some of these, these really far- Long Islands, you know, when these colonial era sa- sailors are uh, are sailing in and showing up with their cats is that we actually have records of some of these native peoples seeing cats for the first time, which I thought was really fascinating because this is an animal that's so familiar to us, so much a part of our households and our lifestyles that we kind of take it for granted. But we have these accounts of these island peoples in the Pacific and um, Hawaii who are watching these ships come in and then they encounter this animal For the first time and they are absolutely charmed and fascinated and i really tried throughout the book to kind of take on the perspective of one of those um island peoples who's looking at this this very familiar creature with fresh eyes and kind of understanding it for the startling um, amazing being that it is not just something that you know is always hiding out under your couch and has been since you were two or something like that
0: right and leaving hair places as if that was the (laughs) issue you know it's, it's interesting because the book is in that way or kind of um the way alexander horowitz is with dogs having us look at things from their perspective or see them in a new way but yours has all this historical context also and i guess so many of us that are aware of cats and, and how intimately they've been involved with humans, it, Egypt always comes up, right? It always comes up because there's those fabulous statues and drawings of cats. Exactly. But, I, you know, even given that, Egypt and the Egyptian culture having been so long okay. ago, there's New Zealand in fairly modern times where a cat's never been seen or other islands. And I guess part of us thinks, oh, they've always been part of humankind. They're just, they've been with us from day one. And yet they haven't. There's places where they're a novelty and they can surprise the people there. Exactly. And the, um, there's what I thought was fascinating, too, is that there are places
1: in the world, um, uh, Neolithic settlements from maybe ten 11,000 years ago in places like modern Turkey, where um, archaeologists can see evidence of these creatures beginning to creep into our settlements. They start finding cat bones in these um, uh, domestic contexts. And so it's a relationship that's a lot newer than um, our relationships with dogs, which is, you know, probably we've had dogs around for twice as long as, as we've had cats Um but another interesting thing is that, you know, the relationship that we have with cats is, uh, house cats is very new, but we've always had this sort of long and deep relationship with the feline family, principally because they were our um, uh, most formidable predators over the long, the long haul. Things like cave lions and saber tooth tigers and all these ferocious um, Uh, distant cousins of the house cat, you know, people and cats don't get along. And that's because we fight over uh, space and resources. And one thing that I sort of motivated me in writing the book was that I thought it was really interesting that there's such house cats are doing so well in the world today. There's almost there's something like between 600 million and a billion of them on the planet today. Meanwhile, you know, the rest of the cat family is really not doing very well precisely Aww. because of its relationship with humanity. That's right. And I think it's kind of, right. you know, I think to sort of... Um, it, I think if we can understand our house cats for what they really are, which is, you know, remarkable athletes and apex predators and solitary social hyper carnivores, you know, we can start to understand members of the big cat family better and to kind of uh, give those guys the, the help that they, that they need. Because I think that the house cat in our homes can be a vehicle for understanding the larger world, or at least that's kind of was my goal in writing the book.
0: That's a really nice way of putting it, because pe- some was some belief, I don't know if it's still politically correct, that, that seeing a lion, a tiger, a jaguar, a cheetah in a zoo makes you more conscious of, oh lordy, we're ruining their habitat and we're killing them or we're killing them for their pelts and so forth. I'm not sure if that, if that actually works, but I wonder if having the lion in the living room does function that way. One of the phrases that... Um, that you talk about in the book, and and it goes to this issue of how long they've lived alongside us, but maybe not so um, in in the way, sort of symbiotic way that we are with dogs, at least emotionally, is that you say that cats have bypassed domestication syndrome. Talk about that. I've never heard that phrase before. It was very interesting.
1: Right. And domestication syndrome is um, a suite of physical, um, and um, also neurological features that um, are common across domestic animals. And when we think about um, the animals we have in our homes and our barnyards, we know kind of intuitively that they look different from wild animals, but the domestication syndrome is a way of saying how they're different. So these animals have um, uh, weird features, like a lot of domesticated animals have floppy ears. A lot of them have shortened faces compared to their wild peers. They have curly tails, they have weird white spots on their coats often, and scientists haven't sort of known exactly and are still trying to figure out really what causes this um, this uh, suite of features and what is it about the relationship with man that um, makes it happen. The interesting thing about house cats is that they don't have a lot of these features. Cats don't really look very different from their um, wild peers in the Near East, um, Celis sylvestris libica, which is still living there today, which is really convenient because while we don't really know what the wild ancestor of dogs looked like, the wild ancestor of house cats is still um, living in, though in very reduced populations in the world today. So we can compare and contrast them. And so they hardly have looked different at all. However, there is one key change that house cats have undergone, and that's the fact that their brains, um, particularly the part of their brain that's associated with um, fear and flight, um, are uh, smaller than their wild peers. So house cats' brains are about one-third smaller than Felis Sylvestris Libicus. And that's part of why these anim- um, house cats are able to tolerate living in close quarters with man. Like we were talking about, cats and people don't really get along. And right. house cats are very cryptic, um, solitary, asocial animals that don't like to be around anyone, not even others of their own kind, let alone humans. But cats, house cats, have sort of taken this one key trait of reducing their fear and startle systems so they can live, you know, in, hum- in our alleyways and, you know, even in our studio apartments, as well as make it in, in the wilderness yes. because they haven't compromised too much. Um, they haven't really given up their, um, their feline uh, uh, blueprint too much.
0: It, it's really an interesting point, the fact that they can simultaneously do both even today. I mean, if the yeah. cat gets lost, it can become feral and survive really well. Completely. Uh, obviously, no dog could possibly do that. You mentioned the face shape and how, and, and I guess what we're referring to is that in breeding of dogs, they've been manipulated and people have speculated that the bigger eyes and that rounder face and a shorter snout it is more human baby-like. And that that's one of the things that apparently attracts the human brain to dogs and makes the bond and makes the oh goo that we do with dogs. <laughs> but we've done that with some cats in breeding them. They're, of course, unnatural, if you will. But then most bred dogs are unnatural in that sense, too. I mean, if they were all left to just mate with each other, they'd all look like Mexican or Puerto Rican or Indian street dogs, they say, or Balinese mm-hmm. in a couple of generations. But what about these, these bred cats that are bred to have these big eyes and these baby faces. There's, I don't know, half a dozen breeds like that. What What is your thought about that? Because you, you also talk a lot in the book about the internet sensations and video sensations of cats, and so many of them were the ones that were these kind of Persian faces or ragdoll faces, very human-manipulated shapes.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things. One, is, one thing is that... Um, uh, just ordinary run-of-the-mill house cats and um, their kittens and their wild peers in the Near East are just naturally blessed with something very much like these um, I think scientists call them baby releasers, this set of features, oh, wow. physical features that reminds us of babies and kind of primes us to nurture and care for them. And it's really interesting because in the in cats, these features arise, um, they're really an, a natural expression of their the way that they hunt. Cats have really big round eyes right at the front of their heads right. because they are um, ambush predators and they re- need really good depth perception. They have little noses because... Um, uh, they don't really snuffle after their prey for miles and miles like uh, like dogs do. They're, right. they're watch and wait predators and explosive ambush attackers. Um, and then they have these round faces. And that's because cats have really, really short jaws um, that are full of um, you know carnivorous type teeth. They don't really have big molars or anything like that. And they have a really short, powerful bite because they need to hold on. So a lot of what looks like a cute baby to us is actually just the cat's functional. incredibly yeah, functional like lethal (laughs) nature which I thought was really interesting Um, and that's a look that you know humans have sort of successfully um, gotten in breeding certain dogs like pugs I think um, certain dog breeds do look a lot like cats and that's something that's very artificial one of the things that I was kind of um amused to learn was how um by and large our efforts to breed house cats to um look different ways and um and especially to, to, um, act different ways have not been that successful. Um, I hadn't really realized it, but, um, purebred cats or pedigreed cats are a lot, um, rarer than, um, purebred or pedigreed dogs. And that's just a function of our relationship with cats. They're really hard to control in their breeding habits. And they live so much, so many of them live outside of this Scope of humans entirely either as alley cats or in you know raw wilderness environments that we have the amount of control that we exercise over feline breeding is negligible and we <laughs> control we we are able to sculpt um, the way that modern dogs look so much. Um, uh more profoundly than than cats it's just one of these uh, it's just another kind of um expression of the rela- our different relationship with these two species um but yeah the persians and 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 stuff are i i had the pleasure of getting to meet some of these amazing looking cats uh face to face at the world cat show and I wasn't allowed to touch them cuz they just had their hair blow dried but <laughs> <laughs> some of some of them i was allowed to touch Um, and, um, you know, I think that what's interesting about cat breeding is that a lot of it is kind of focused, um, entirely on aesthetics. A lot of dog breeds are guided by at least sort of notional functionality. Like this is a rat terrier. It's going to be, have short legs and catch, catch rats, or, you know, this is a, a war dog or this is a lap dog, these different things. Cats have a less clear, um, set of functions that they perform in human life. So we don't really breed them even for any kind of fake purpose. We just breed them for aesthetic purposes. And so I think that's why we get some of these really weird looking guys. I got to go down to... um, uh, Tennessee to meet this um, emergent breed um, called the lycoy or werewolf cat which was another oh, really 40. interesting looking cat yeah that um, that had you know probably just a single gene mutation but um, was being cultivated as a marketable breed and that was kind of amazing too that you know we could just pluck a couple of different mutants out of the population and give rise to an, a whole new kind of cat style.
0: <laughs> it's, it's really interesting we humans know even if our meddling and, and interference doesn't work, and, and an animal thrives despite or or regardless of us. We still are going to keep on trying. It, it exactly. Seems to be, <laughs> it seems to be hilarious, and it's what the conversation started with: is that they're in control; they are totally driving this, and the exactly. idea that we, we are is laughable. But I think what you've collected in the lion and living room is so much information that it's just it's a fascinating look at the whole history of. Humans and companion animals, or wish wishfully, would if only they would be companion animals. I think it's, it's really tremendous. <laughs> the, the other the other myth that you debunk in there, along with many others, is the idea that they're rodent catchers. So those cats that were kept on ships, presumably to keep the rats and mice out of the stores of grain or whatever else was being transported, one of the things you bring up is that they're actually you know those cartoons. Of Tom and Jerry, they really would have hung out together. They really weren't out to kill each, to be killed, to die, or or, or kill. They, it's re- they're really not very good at that. I guess they're much better at killing birds, unfortunately, right?
1: yeah it's um you know the i have n-
0: thankfully never
1: been aboard a you know 17th century sailing ship i think that they were very um, unclean and claustrophobic and so i can't say exactly what happened on those ships although i will say that some of these um these uh voyagers british mostly who came ashore at these different polynesian islands um, um, in one case um, i think the natives were so taken by the the cats and so charmed that they actually ended up stealing the cats. And the sailors on the ship said, Oh, no, we can't afford to lose our cats. We've got way too many rats on our ship. And it was kind of like, you know, if the cats had been doing their job on this tiny little ship, you'd think that they would have managed to get rid of the rats. um, You know, after how many, however many months at sea. Um, But, you know, that's, that's pretty speculative. And those um, rats that were on those ships, I think were black rats, um, as opposed to the bigger, tougher Norway rats, which are the rats that we have in our cities today. And, you know, there's not that much research on this stuff anymore, how cats impact rat populations, because in the 60s and 70s, we sort of perfected the art of rat poisons. And everybody agrees that these are sort of more effective than having an alley cat um, around. And, you know, we we all know, all cat owners know that cat, caskets are, um, formidable killers and can kill things that are bigger than them. They can kill things like pelicans. They can kill, um, in some cases, small wallabies, all sorts of things, but, um, Norway rats, um, are, um, you know, the dominant rats of American cities. And they're really big, they're really mean, um, and um, they're really good at breeding. They're one of the few animals that's probably better at breeding and surviving good than job. house cats are. <laughs> and basically scientists have, um, studying these populations in the um back alleys of Baltimore, where there's an ongoing rodent ecology project, they've realized that, you know, cats do tend to live in the same alleys where there's big populations of um, sewer rats around. Um, But that's not because the cats are preying on the rats and, you know, keeping their populations down in some sort of favor to humanity. That's because the cats and rats are both living in the same alleys where there's lots of trash. And the cats and rats can both eat um, different um, parts of the of the the trash pile and get along quite well. And there's some um, funny photos that have gone with these scientific papers of, you know, cats and rats being really just a few inches apart, um, you know, (laughs) feasting on trash (laughs) together.
0: I love it. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. The, the book is, is just chock-a-block with marvelous stuff. The Lion in the Living Room, How house cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World. Abigail Tucker, you've done a great favor to cats and to all of us. Thank you so much for this wonderful book. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has deepened your understanding and affection for cats everywhere. It's been brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, which has broken new ground by creating a healthy, dry, and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein, which is inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey, so your cat's appetite is satisfied longer without compromising her health. This is the first dry cat food I believe can be a healthy choice if you want to feed dry cat food to your cat, even as part of her diet although I recommend that canned food should always be your cat's primary diet. Feel free to reach out to me with questions or comments to radiopetlady at gmail.com. Talk soon.